All right. Well, I'm Timo Sazo, and uh, as Dave said, I'm an intern here. And yes, I broke my foot uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I'm going to be serving a lot this month in, uh, up here uh, in front, so you're going to see me limp along a lot. Hopefully this sermon will not be a limping along. It will be better than that. All right. Well, so uh, we're going to be looking at God's Word, so we need His help. So let's go to God in prayer. Our Lord and Savior, we need your word. Thank you that we have this opportunity to open up your word together as a church. We pray that you would be with us. Pray that you would give us light and understanding. We pray that you would give us soft hearts. And we pray also by your spirit that you would give us the ability to put it in practice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I recently listened to a fascinated TED Talk that started out like this. Let me start by asking a question to the parents out there. Would you consider asking a total stranger, someone you've never met before, never even seen before, to meet your kids after school, put your kids in their car, which by the way, you haven't seen either, and drive them halfway across town? Just asking that hypothetical question freaks me out. Let me ask you another question. Would you invest in a business that, that does that? Have strangers driving kids around town? It seems like an absurdly untrustworthy value proposition, an impossible business plan, doomed to fail, doesn't it? Well, this may come to a surprise uh, as a surprise to you, but back in 2014, three moms started a company called Hop Skip Drive with this exact model. It served one million customers and in February 2020 raised $22 million and expanded to several cities in the U.S. How did they do that? How did they create uh, trust in what many of us believe is one of the most inherently untrustworthy situations possible? Well, the short answer, they built trust in the overall system. Customers don't necessarily trust hop-skip drivers, but they do trust the hop-skip drive system, what we call systemic trust. And that's what makes it work. Right, so that's, that's all from the TED Talk. That's not from me. Um, but that illustration really left me wondering about trust. What does it mean for someone or something to be trustworthy? What exactly is a good enough track record to entrust my life or my kids' lives to someone? 80% of promises fulfilled? Doubtful. 90%? getting warmer, 99%, uh, still not certain. Even if someone were trustworthy 99% of the time, I wonder if that one instance of a broken promise would be all the more painful because of my high expectation of trust. Well, trust is a rare commodity these days. Actually, it always has been. 
it's a crazy world we live in and we've all experienced pain from broken trust. So in light of that, how does, how can anyone earn our trust? Well, that's what we're going to look at in our message this morning because we're continuing our series through the Old Testament book of Joshua. So if you have a Bible, please turn there. It's the sixth book of the Bible, right after Deuteronomy. And as you might know, Joshua is a narrative of Israel's entrance into conquest of, distribution of, and settling in the land of Canaan. And two weeks ago, we looked at the distribution of the land in chapters 13 through 19. Our sermon today deals with what happens right after that in uh, chapters 20, 21, 22, 23, and 24. Now we're just doing 20 and 21, okay? Dave, Dave can do the, the more than two chapters at a time sermon, so. Uh, well, in here in chapter 20 and 21, we see a sort of addendum to the distribution that we saw in the previous uh, chapters. Because there was one uh, special kind of city that hadn't been assigned yet and there was also one Israelite, Israelite tribe that hadn't yet received a place to live. So here's the big idea that I have for our message today. If you don't get anything else, hope you get more. But if th- this is the main idea. God keeps all his promises. Therefore, we can trust and seek refuge in him. God keeps all his promises. Therefore, we can trust and seek refuge in him. So as we look at the passage, we will do three things. We will see that the Lord promised and gave two kinds of cities. We will think about the point of the land distribution, and we will consider how we should respond. So we'll see that the Lord promised and gave two two kinds of cities, We will think about the point of the land distribution, and we will consider how we should respond. All right, so let's start in chapter 20, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be... For you, a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. So, back in Exodus... And knowing that in the life of his people, there would be tragic accidents, God promised to provide a place where those who caused someone else's death unintentionally may flee and be protected. 
And in our passage, we see that God provides such a place. He calls them cities of refuge. So even if a killing is unintentional, someone else's life has been taken. And therefore, something needs to be done about it. Maybe you notice that our passage mentions the avenger of blood. And for uh, that sounds very scary to me. Sounds like the name of a death metal band. Um, and, and for us modern readers, it may evoke images of a vigilante or perhaps even a, a hitman hired by the victim's family. But in reality, back in the days of the Old Testament, the avenger of blood was simply a member of the victim's family who was responsible for ensuring that justice was done. And so the manslayer life was now in, in danger of being taken by the avenger of blood. So if the, if the manslayer wanted to preserve his life, he had to flee to one of these cities and follow the proper plot process, which we see outlined in verses 4 through 6. Namely, he had to stand before the leaders of that city and explain his case. Uh, and if the leaders, consider, after considering the evidence, determined that the killing was involuntary, they had to take him in and give him a place to stay, a place to live. It was now their responsibility to protect the manslayer. And the manslayer had to stay there in that city for a period of time, which could be years. So, of, of course, in our day, things do not work quite this way. Let's say you commit involuntary manslaughter, and maybe the, the lawyers here can correct me. That's uh, okay. Involunt let's say, uh, working, working term, involuntary manslaughter. You may be able to get out on bail. It's expensive, but it's possible. It, it started at $50,000. Uh, you may be able to get on bail and do normal life until the judge or jury makes a decision on your case. But can you imagine living in a society where your life was in danger at every moment? Where your only chance of survival was to escape, not by, not by driving, not by taking a motorcycle, but walking, fleeing, running, and make it to a distant city before the avenger of blood found you. Can you imagine that? Well, to help in that situation, God reminds Joshua and all of Israel that they need to assign cities of, uh, of um, refuge. And that's what we see in verses 7 through 9. Chapter 20, verse 7. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee, in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, they appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the table land, from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead, from the tribe of Gad, from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan, from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the strangers sojourning among them, 
that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. And so Israel designates six cities spread throughout the country and in such a way that they would be accessible to people from every tribe. So what what are we seeing here? Well, I think in the cities of refuge, we have a picture of the mercy of God. Because in the men's lair, we have a picture of who we are before God. We are like the manslayer. Our sin, whether intentional or unintentional, leaves us vulnerable and liable to God's judgment. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And so, like the manslayer, we need a refuge. But where do we find it? Well, today we don't flee to a city. We flee to a person. We go to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, God in the flesh, he lived a sinless life. And he died on a cross like a criminal. He did it in our place for our sins. And so in Christ, God has provided protection against the guilt of our sin. Christ is our refuge. Maybe you're here today and you're thinking, how could God, could God accept me? If you only knew what I've done, if you only knew what I've thought, if you only knew what I've said. And friend, it's true that you have done horrible things. I have too. You and I have rebelled against the one who made us. But this is the wonderful news of the gospel, that God protects us from his wrath by putting Christ as a substitute. He forgives our sins and gives us new life. How do we receive that? Well, we receive that new life by repenting of our sins and trusting in Jesus. And if you haven't done that, I would tell you, do it today. If you've never done that, if you have questions about that, I would encourage you to stick around after the service and talk to me or talk to anyone you've seen out here. We'd love to tell you more about Jesus. So God promised cities of refuge, and he gave them. And that was the first kind of city. Let's now talk about the second kind of city that we see in our passage. Let's go to chapter 21, verse 1. Then the heads of the father's houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest, and to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, The Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in, along with their pasture lands for our livestock. Let's stop there. 
So here's the one Israelite tribe, the Levites, who had not received part of the land as inheritance. And to understand why, we need to go back a little bit in the story of the Bible. Levi was one of the sons of Jacob. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And back in Genesis 34, Levi um, and his son Simeon committed a horrendous act of violence. And as a punishment, God said that Levi and his sons would be scattered among the other tribes of Israel. So in other words, they would not receive a section of the land as their own inheritance like the other tribes. However, many years later in the episode of the golden calf in Exodus 32, the sons of Levi were the one tribe that was faithful and zealous uh, for God when everyone else had gone astray. And so as a blessing for their faithfulness, they were set apart and ordained for the service of God relative to the tabernacle. They would stand before God as representatives of the whole nation. So Levi had three sons, Kohath, Gershon, and Merah. Well, I wish I had considered those names for my son. But Kohath, Gershon, and Merah. Both Moses and Aaron were Kohathites, and all of the Levites were uh, all of the Levites were connected in some shape or form to the worship of God, but only those in the line of Aaron had the particular role of priest. Okay, all that to say, while the Levites were not going to possess territory, they still needed places to live and they needed to have the ability to provide for themselves and their families and their animals. And so God provides cities for them. And that's what we see in most of chapter 21. Let's pick up in uh, verse 3. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. The lot came out for the clans of the Kohathites, So those Levites who were descendants of Aaron, the priest, received by lot from the tribes of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin, 13 cities. And the rest of the Kohathites received by lot from the clans of the tribe of Ephraim, from the tribe of Dan, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, 10 cities. The Gershonites received by lot from the clans of the tribe of Issachar, from the tribe of Asher, from the tribe of Naphtali, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh in Bashan, 13 cities. The Merarites, according to their clans, received from the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the tribe of Zebulun, 12 cities. These cities and their pasture lands, the people of Israel gave by lot to the Levites, as the Lord had commanded through Moses. We're going to skip verses 9 through 40. Uh, those verses provide more details on these cities, and the names are too hard for me to pronounce. So uh, let's pick up on verse 41. The cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel were in all 48 cities in their pasture, with their pasture lands. These cities had each 
um, each had its pasture lands around it. And so it was with all these cities. So the Levites are given places to dwell, 48 cities in total. And thus, the process of land distribution and assignment concludes. Well, since we didn't read all of chapter 21, one thing that you may have missed is that all the cities of refuge, which we talked about in chapter 20, are also Levitical cities. And I think there's something there for us to learn about the character of God, about his care and comfort for sinners. Remember, the people who sought protection in the cities of refuge were some of the most vulnerable. They had caused someone else's death. There was a target on their backs. They probably experienced deep guilt and fear and loneliness. But by dwelling in the cities of refuge, they were in close contact with those who had access to the tabernacle, with those who had access to the, to the place where the very presence of God was manifested. The Bible says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. God comforts he delights in comforting broken people. And the fact that he made the cities of refuge to be also Levitical cities points us to that. Well, today, if we need comfort in the midst of our brokenness and sin, we don't need to find a Levite community, which would be pretty hard to find. Instead, we go to Jesus. Because he's our great Levite. He is our great high priest. He knows our weaknesses and sins. And yet he's patient and compassionate. He intercedes for us. And Jesus is always with us. Just like the manslayer lived, lived with the Levites, worked with the Levites, ate and drank with the Levites, we have constant access to Christ. We can enjoy close fellowship with Him. But not only do we have access to Christ, we have Him as our inheritance. You see, in the Levites, we find a foreshadowing of what's to come in the rest of the Bible in a beautiful truth for all of those who trust in Christ. Because, in the Levites, uh, because while the Levites wouldn't possess land, they had something better than land as their inheritance. As we've seen in, in uh, previous passages in the book of Joshua, God says that in the case of the Levites, God himself is their inheritance. And brothers and sisters, ultimately, what we get through faith is not a second chance in life, or an easy life, or a nice car, or a nice house, or a beautiful, healthy family. We get God 
we get to enjoy God now and forever. And through Christ, we are brought into communion with the triune God. He becomes our possession and we become his. That is the best inheritance ever. So God promised cities of refuge and he gave them. And he promised cities for the Levites and he gave them. Now, where does that leave us? Or what's the greater point uh, about all these things? Well, and I think it's, that's found at the end of chapter 21. So let's go to chapter 21, verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it. And they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. God gave Israel all the land that he has sworn to their fathers. God gave Israel rest from all their enemies. All the good promises that, the, that God had made Israel came to pass. God kept all his promises. So at the end of the day, this passage as much as it may teach us about laws and regulations and geography and family trees, what it really seeks to impress in us is that God's word is reliable. God's word is reliable. When God makes a promise, he keeps it. He keeps all his promises. Many of us know this in a rational level but we have a hard time knowing this in an experiential level. We've all known the pain that comes from broken promises. And we tend to project those experiences of broken promises onto God. We also know that we ourselves don't, won't, or can't keep our own promises. And we tend to project that unwillingness or inability to keep our promises on God. But brothers and sisters, God is not like us. He's not contingent. He's not conditional. When he makes promises, his promises are based on his absolute, independent, powerful character. That's why he can say things like what he says in Isaiah 55. He says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but... Water, to the, water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out of my mouth, it shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is reliable. And so, in light of these things, what should we do? 
What should be our response? Well, remember, uh, remember Hop Skip Drive, how they built systematic trust? Well, I'm, I'm not suggesting that God is three moms who run a successful business, although that would be a good analogy for the Trinity, or maybe not the worst analogy for the Trinity. But there is an analogy there, right? Because God builds a system of, of trust. God builds a system of trust but by making and keeping his promises. God's track record is not 80%, 90%, or 99%. It's perfect from beginning to end. And so our response needs to be one of trust in God. We need to trust him. We need to flee to him for refuge. We need to flee to him who is our high priest. Now, trusting in God doesn't mean that everything is okay, that everybody should be happy, and that we should avoid talking about the hard things of life. No, as Christians, we don't need to live in denial. As Christians, we can face reality as it is because we know that God is in control and that his promises will certainly come true. Think about Israel. God had delivered them from their enemies and had given them rest, at least in principle. If this was the end of the story, we should expect a happy ending. But it's not a happy ending yet. They, they didn't live happily ever after in Canaan. There were accidents. There was death. There was need for legal procedures. There was need for the execution of justice. There was a constant need for sacrifice and atonement of sins. But despite these ongoing reminders of their brokenness and of their transgressions, God's character, God's character and his actions gave them assurance that whatever he had promised would come to pass. And so as believers today, we know that the land of Canaan was a type, a foretaste of what, what, what was to come. The Lord Jesus Christ, as Second Corinthians says, he is the one in whom all the promises of God find their yes. Jesus is our inheritance. Jesus is our home. Jesus is our refuge. He's the one who protects us from the guilt of our sin and the persecution of our enemies. And so in his life of obedience, his death on the cross, and his resurrection, we have seen the fulfillment of God's promises. And yet we still live in this in-between time. We're still awaiting for the consummation of our redemption. As we were seeing in Revelation and in the sun, in adult Sunday school, we're still waiting for new heavens and new earth, where there will be no more sin, no more death, where we will be resurrected and we will be fit for perfect communion with God. In, the, in this in-between time that we live in, God's character and actions in Christ 
give us assurance that whatever he had promised will come to pass. And so in these difficult days, we need to hold on to the promises of God. And please note, we, don't, we need to hold on to God's promises, of his promises, not what we wished he had promised. Because he did not promise us health or wealth. He did not promise easy relationships or easy parenting or sleeping through the night or an easy childhood and successful in sc- uh, success in school. He did not promise that as a church, we would, we would all approve of each other's choices and agree in our political and social views. He did not promise that. But God has given us something better. God has built a system of trust. Look at all the things that he had promised and that he has already kept. Think about what we saw in chapters 13 through 19. Every single thing that God promised, he gave. He kept all of his promises to a T. And in chapters 20 and 21, he does it again. So if God kept those promises, why won't he keep these two? Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I am with you always to the end of the age. I am making all things new. Surely I am coming soon. Not one of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Brothers and sisters, God keeps all his promises. Therefore, we can trust and seek refuge in him. Let's do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are gracious to us. Thank you that you provided a refuge for us and a greater inheritance than the land of Canaan. Thank you for your son Jesus, in whom all your promises have come true. Help us, Lord, to hold on uh, in these difficult days. Help us trust that whatever you promise shall come true. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.